Well, good morning. It's good to be with you. Uh, it's, it's been a few years since I've been with you. I'm so excited to be back in Fairdale. I love this place. I love Josh Green. Don't let him fool you for a second. If he's got a ball in his hand, he's going to break your ankles. Uh, but uh, it's so good to be back with you uh, and, and just to celebrate what God is doing here in this place. And uh, I'm so excited that the gospel is advancing here, that the church is growing here. And uh, I look forward to see what God's going to continue to do in the days ahead. I would invite you to turn your, your Bible to Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11. And we're going we're gonna to be in verses 5 through 13 this morning. And I'm going to go ahead and invite you to stand in the, in the honor of reading of the, the Word of God. So let's stand together as I read verses 5 through 8, and then I'll read the rest of the passage as we walk through the text this morning. Luke chapter 11, verses 5 through 8. He also said to them, Suppose one of you has a friend and goes to him at midnight and says to him, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread, because a friend of mine on a journey has come to me, and I don't have anything to offer him. Then he will answer from inside and say, Don't bother me. The door is already locked, and my children and I have gone to bed. I can't give up, any, give up anything to you. I tell you, even though he won't get up and give him anything because he is his friend, Yet because of his friend's shameless boldness, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. Let's pray. Father, help us right now. Spirit, be in this place. May your word be so clear that we would apply it to our heart, that you would apply it to our hearts by your spirit, and that we would be transformed. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for standing. Take your seats. As we were, uh, as, I, as I was preparing for this, this uh, opportunity this morning, I was thinking about uh, memories that I had from Fairdale from 2008 to 2010, and uh, there's there lots of good ones, um, but one of the things I always came back to was the things that I learned, that my, my wife and I, Amanda, learned from this place. And I'll never forget, uh, uh, the, one of the first things was we had pre-service prayer, and that was typically a, a few deacons and the staff, Josh probably had gotten off his night shift at UPS and came straight here, and Josh Powell would be preaching, and his sons would be running all over the place, crawling over the pews, and we would pray for the service. And I remember just being, uh, just taught so well, dependency upon the Lord. One of, one of my favorite prayers that was ever prayed from this pulpit was a sermon Josh Green was, was telling, or, or was during a sermon. He, he stopped in the middle of the sermon and began to pray. It was during Christmas. And he was thanking the Lord for all he had done for him, and then he began to sing, it's the most wonderful time of the year. <laughs> He's hating that I'm telling that on him right now. And I remember, I remember thinking, man, this is a special place. This is, this is where I can be myself, you know. Uh, but the Lord was, even, even in these moments, the Lord was teaching us, teaching us to be dependent upon him. I also remember early on uh, in, uh, in my time here, I remember Josh Green just, and, and the other pastors that were here talking about setting a goal to, to pray together as a church for an hour and a half to two hours a week. And man, I was just starting out in ministry. You know, I, I grew up in church. My dad's a pastor. But I was so thankful the Lord placed me here uh, in my early 20s because I got to see godly men speak the gospel to their wives and their children. I got to see godly men uh, go to the Lord dependently for everything, for every decision, every circumstance. And the Lord taught me so much in this place. If we're honest, 
as a church and as God's people, oftentimes we find ourselves in prayerlessness, don't we? Oftentimes we, we think we're coming to a veiled wizard who's behind the curtain like in The Wizard of Oz. You remember the three characters that, that emerge in that story. There's a scarecrow and he's in need of a brain. There's a tin man in need of a heart. And there's a lion in need of courage. And each of these characters is sure that this wizard can supply all their needs. But to their dismay, they find that the wizard's not a wizard of all. He's just an ordinary man behind a curtain. We struggle to pray And my prayer for us this morning is in our time together, we will remember whose we are and that we'll live our lives confidently as a prayerful people. So my big idea for this morning is simply this from the text, that the the heartbeat of the local church is dependency on a loving, powerful father. Dependency on a loving, powerful father. And as I alluded to just a moment ago, we're so prone to trust other things, our intellect, our skill, our wealth, And so often we live prayerless lives. So in this text, Jesus teaches us first that our prayers should be shamelessly bold. That's what we just read, verses 5 through 8. You'll notice at the beginning of chapter 11, we see the disciples, they're requesting that Jesus teach them how to pray. And so Jesus models for them the Lord's prayer. Now this isn't a prayer that's meant to be necessarily verbatim. While it can be that, the Lord is here presenting principles for what to pray for. And in our passage, Jesus has pivoted away from what to pray, but to the motivation to pray. And at this point in the gospel, Jesus has modeled this really well. We see Jesus praying in the gospel of Luke 11 times. So in our parable that we just read, the the host has, has a dilemma. A guest has arrived And the host has nothing to offer. There's there's no bread for their guest. Culturally, this would have been embarrassing. This would have been humiliating. Hospitality in the first century was a high priority. And so this host, with the pressure of meeting the needs of the guest, makes the decision to go to a nearby neighbor and ask for bread. Now, I want to take your mind really quickly to to the first century house real quick. It was probably one room. The entire family probably slept on a mat together. The door probably had a huge piece of wood or metal that locked the door, and there was probably livestock inside as well. My wife and I have joked about that. That sounds awful. (laughs) What is Jesus trying to say to the disciples, to us? Well, let me first say, I don't think he's only only speaking to persistence in prayer. Like the child who asked on the long car ride, are we there yet? Are we there yet? It's not the repetitive nature of the the request. Verse eight says, because of his shameless boldness, he will get up and give him whatever he needs. I think the emphasis in this part of the text is the audacity of the request. This is what drives the neighbor to annoy his friend in the middle of the night to wake them all up because of the cultural implications of what he's doing, we have this audacious request. There's another reality that we've already sang about this morning in a couple of the songs. Now I'm a worship pastor. I pay close attention to the lyrics. I love worshiping with you all this morning. But the other reality is that this host has nowhere to go. He has nowhere to go. He can't go to Kroger or Pick Pack or anywhere else. The only hope 
of the need being met for his friend next door is, is to go to him. And this is the place that things start and end for us. It's the best place for e, each of us to be this morning. There is literally no place for you and I to go but to the Lord. As we sang, he's the only one who can. Do we believe that? Do we know that? Each of us has sinned against the Lord. We've rebelled against the Lord. We've walked our own way. And the good news for you and I this morning is that because of Christ and the gospel, we're offered forgiveness. Believers, we, we have nowhere else to go. And I trust that you've learned by experience and that by walking with him in, in wisdom that you have no other hope besides his grace. Our prayer lives ought to be fueled by the fact that we know we have no other refuge. Can we agree with Peter in John 6 where he said, where else can we go? You have the words of life. So Jesus teaches us that our prayer should be shamelessly bold. He also teaches us that we should pray in persistent hope. Look with the text with me in verses nine through 10. So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Jesus explains to his disciples the response that they should have. He says, ask, seek, knock. Now remember, we're in the context of Jesus' teaching on prayer and specifically motivation to pray. So this invitation for the disciples, this invitation for us this morning to ask, to pray, to seek, meaning to pursue knowing God and pursuing his kingdom agenda, and to knock, pointing us to his opening the door of his presence. In practical terms, we could say, that asking requires each of us to first have the humility to know that we have an actual need. In our house, this past two months, it's been a race. We have all three kids playing on a soccer team. And oftentimes, we lose our keys. You ever been there? I will, I will not shy away from telling you that I lose my keys a lot. And sometimes my wife takes both sets of keys to work, and that's a big problem, because then you're stuck. But we'll, we won't talk about that. But when we think about asking and seeking and knocking in the context of losing your car keys, it would be like this. Honey, have you seen my keys? Admitting there's a need. Seeking would, be, would suggest this idea of asking and then searching after them, starting to look around the house with concern. Knocking would speak to the the persevering in pursuit of the keys, going from room to room, asking the kids, interrogating the dog, <laughs> retracing all your steps. The language here tells us that each of these imperatives, ask, seek, and knock, are to be done constantly in the life of the believer. They're the defaults of our lives. And in this case, we're commanded to humbly come to the Lord like a child on the long car ride, making every request to God, knowing that he never tires, that he's patient and long-suffering with his saints. Notice from the passage the, the corresponding promises that are attached to these commands. Those who ask will receive. Those who seek will find. Those who knock will have the door open to them. 
Meaning that in coming to God in prayer, we have intimate access to the Father. We can know that he will respond in his infinite wisdom. Jesus is radically reinterpreting for his disciples the reality that prayer with the Lord is not a meaningless endeavor. It's not a set of words to be recited in front of people in public, but rather he's communicating that when we talk to the Lord, when we pray to the Lord, he's the only one who has power to answer and promises to answer and provide. Certainly, this doesn't mean that he's obligated to answer each request as we want. I've been known to pray for selfish things, and you have as well. But what it does show us is that the Lord responds to his disciples with their best interest in mind. He responds graciously so that when we make a request, we ask God with faith that he will answer in his time and in his way. God hears each of your requests in Christ. His responses to your life, they're sifted through sovereign hands. Your life should rest solidly in the full conviction that our king is in control and is fully capable of working even the hardest providence for your good. Many of you in this room have endured unimaginable circumstances. And sometimes when you pray to the Lord, you have some sense of terror at what God has allowed to happen to you. Now, I won't pretend to know all the answers, but, but I will say that through prayer, we can confess even our fear to the Lord. You can confess your anger at him. He's big enough for that too. We're called to pray with full conviction that our king always answers graciously in accordance with his will. We must trust him and rest in his sovereign hands as our creator. So let me exhort you to ask, to seek, to knock. The, the Lord desires for you to come to him. Bring your doubts. This precious teaching is the assurance that God hears us, that he cares for you, and that he will respond. So First Baptist Fairdale, will we humble ourselves before him this morning? Are you desperate for the Lord? Did you come through the doors desperate to, to see that the Lord is good? Did you come through the doors wanting to have a sense that his presence is near? Our need and desperation, they motivate us to come to the only one who could answer. And we pursue him until he answers. We are shamelessly bold in the way that we pray and approach him. Much like Genesis 32, where Jacob wrestles with God, he refuses to let go of him until he blesses him. Jacob's life, up to that point, had been a life of wrestling. He had done everything in his power to manipulate God. In the, in the wrestling, he faces God and struggles throughout the night. And Jacob leaves the wrestling wounded for the rest of his life. He has a new name, Israel. Jacob is a visual picture of persistence in our encounter with God. God can handle your fear. God can handle your doubt. He can cover your shame. Come to the throne of God persistently and boldly through the person and work of Jesus and expect him to act. 
Jesus also teaches us in this passage to pray, trusting in a gracious Father. Look at verses 11 through 13. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Jesus teaches us that we are to pray trusting in a gracious Father. And Jesus here gets to the heart of our motivation to pray. That heart is that he relates to us as Father. As Father. At the beginning of chapter 11, Jesus models for the disciples in the Lord's Prayer how they should pray. What do they say first? Father, hallowed be your name. Now our modern ears have been numbed to that important title. Jews were not accustomed to calling God their father, that was not the normal way to address the Lord. Do you remember how, how the people responded when, when Jesus addressed the Lord as father in John chapter five? Jesus said, my father is still working and I'm working also. This is why the Jews began to try to kill him all the more. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling his own God his father, making himself equal to God. Or maybe you remember the shock and awe of Mary Magdalene in John chapter 20 when she saw the risen Lord. Jesus said, don't cling to me since I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and tell them I'm ascending to my Father and your Father and to my God and your God. Jesus offends others by addressing God as Father And even more amazingly, he extends the invitation to Mary and the disciples and to us that that we can address God as Father. This was unheard of. And by referring to God as Father, we have a clue into what Jesus wants the engine of our prayer life to be. Shameless boldness in prayer, a constant asking, seeking, knocking, and communication with God are all motivated by a desire to have intimacy with God, to be close to God. You and I in Christ are pursuing a relationship with him. We're pursuing fellowship with him. We're pursuing abiding or dwelling with him. We go to the one who has fatherly concern for us. Theology, which is just simply the study of God, is meant to bring intimacy with God, nothing else. When you know who God is, when you see his character, when you see his immense love for his people, we grow in our love and trust of him. Theology's aim is intimacy with the Father. And this intimacy leads to our dependence on him and our consistent pleading with him in prayer. We know that the God we pray to is not like the Wizard of Oz. And from Scripture... And walking with him, we know who God is and can fully place our trust and dependence on him without reservation. Zooming out a little bit in this passage before us, we see that Jesus first uses this analogy of the neighbor and host, that's the parable. And in the passage we just read, he paints a picture of a father's compassion for his his children. These verses are pretty simple What self-respecting dad would give a snake to their kid instead of a fish? 
What self-respecting dad would give a scorpion to their kids who asked for an, an egg? These are rhetorical questions in the text. Snakes and scorpions would actually cause harm to children. What Jesus is saying is very sinful. If sinful, imperfect fathers like me know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more? How much more? Did you hear that? How much more will the eternal father of glory give to us who have been washed in the blood of the lamb? How much more? He knows what we need as his children. If we're honest, we know that we find ourselves in seasons of prayerlessness because we refuse to believe that our Father is good or that he knows what's best for us or maybe that he won't even answer it all. And in our pride, we make this, we make this mistake in reading this passage to compare our Heavenly Father to the grumpy neighbor. Maybe the, the Father that we pray to secretly has snakes and scorpions ready to be handed over to us. But the reality for you and for me and for First Baptist Fairdale is that God's word over and over and over again consistently reveals to us a father who stands in infinitely stark contrast to the earthly metaphors that are used here. Jesus is the antithesis to these things. Thank you, Lord, that you're not like us, that, that he's not too busy, he's strong enough, he's, he's gracious, he's quick to show love and affection to his children. He desires to be near us. Maybe we don't pray because we don't believe that we're actually his children. Through the gospel, we have a new identity, primarily as a child of God. We are a member of God's household. We're sons and daughters of the high king. And in pursuit of God in prayer, the Lord desires to give us what's best, the Holy Spirit, which is at the end of the passage. The comforter, the one who points us to, to Jesus, is dwelling within us. This is who will teach us to pray. The Spirit will mold and shape our desires to holiness, he will empower us to find great joy in fellowship with him. We are adopted children. Friends, he is for you this morning. Fairdale, he is for you. In the Gospels, it's amazing how Jesus sits down with the unexpected, the outcast, the broken one. Most famously in John chapter four, at the woman at the well, we see Christ fully knowing who she is and drawing out her heart, even though she's a great sinner, and he offers her living water. Friends, this is, this is your king. This is my king. He perfectly demonstrates hospitality, not just in food offered at a table, which we're about to feast in a few minutes, and I'm really excited about that, but he offers himself. He offers himself a lamb without spot or blemish, a perfect and forever sacrifice that allows us to have full rights. As redeemed children of God, we have a new name in Christ. We have a new identity. And we're called to walk in that reality. The good news of the gospel today says to us that there is hope if you're here this morning and you've neglected fellowship with the Lord. And on a homecoming Sunday like today, the good news for us is that whether or not your father was amazing or average or absent or even abusive. We have a heavenly father who is perfect. 
who knows your need. He knows your name. And he wants you to come to him with whatever you're carrying this morning. My, per- my current pastor in the place I serve, he has this line. He always says, what you believe about God is the most important thing about you. And for today's purposes, I changed it a little bit. And I would say, what a church believes about our Heavenly Father is what is most important about us. The Father in his kindness has given us one another. He has blessed you and me with the reality that he walks with us. And that we have brothers and sisters that we're sitting next to right now in a community of faith to do life with. In doing some discipleship with some college guys, working through a curriculum, I found this story that speaks to this reality. It's a story of a girl named Sophie. I'm just gonna read this story about, about her adoption. It says, it was Sophie's first day with her adoptive parents. She stalked nervously in her new home, fearing the mistreatment she used to receive on the streets. The toys in her home went untouched. She, she could not quite believe they were hers. At dinner, she secretly stuffed food in her pocket. She never knew where her next meal would come from when she was on the street. That night, she felt alone in her big room. She would have cried if she had not long since learned to suppress emotion. Now listen to her mother one year later. She crawled into bed with me last night because she was having a bad dream. She curled up next to me, put her head on my chest, told me she loved me, smiled, and went to sleep. I nearly cried with contentment. Sophie had a new identity on day one. She'd become a child in a new family, but she still lived like a child on the street. Her actions and attitudes were shaped by her old identity. Christians, too, have been adopted into a new family and given a new identity. We are to live out our new identity to be who we are. So do we live like a slave when you can live like a child of the King of Heaven? As I close this morning, I want to leave you with a few questions to think about from this text. As a church, what lies are you tempted to believe about your heavenly Father? And what is keeping you from the life of prayer and dependence that's described in this passage? Parents, there's lots of parents in the room. I was just thrilled when Josh told me y'all had so many babies. (laughs) I love that. I want to ask you this question, parents. If your life was over today, what would your children say mattered most to you? What would your children say mattered most to you? I, I say that because I have, for the first time I have a high schooler, which is crazy. But your life is being observed by those closest to you. Do your kids find you? Do they catch you praying at home? Mom and dad, do your your kids have a tangible expression of dependency on Christ in front of them? Do your children know that you understand your need before the Father? Parents, do you you model confession and repentance before your kids? You don't just address their mistakes. Are you actively seeking to draw out the hearts of your children, not just wielding with an iron fist? You'll do what I say when I say it. I remember so many times when my kids would do something they knew was wrong. They said something, they spilled something, they broke something, 
And they knew they did something wrong. So what'd they do? They'd run and hide. And it's so tempting to come, come to them hiding in their room and just, just lay on the shame. What were you doing? I can't believe you did that. And by asking these harsh questions, I was just heaping shame upon their hearts. I had to repent of my own parenting because I made matters worse. No, we should, we should be much more like King Jesus in the way we parent our kids in the home. Son, why were you hiding? Son or daughter, what were you wanting when you did this? What are the lies you're believing right now about yourself and about God? Son, daughter, did you know that Jesus offers you forgiveness? Draw the hearts, out, draw the hearts of your children out. Ask them questions and lead them to the, to the cross. Parents, what would your children say matters most to you this morning? Church, for the rest of us, are we relating to one another in the same way? Are we, by the Spirit, thinking of others' needs before our own? Are we quick to intercede for one another? Are we speaking the truth in love to one another? Are you praying for your pastors? I love the pastor's boxes. And as you look to the future, First Baptist Church, Fairdale, are you being shamelessly bold in what you're asking the Lord to do in this community in the next 107 years? A few years ago, I was on a mission trip with students, and I was convicted by a question that one of the leaders at the group we were with asked. He asked this question, what has your church prayed for recently that will matter 30,000 years from now? Meaning, our knees ought to be calloused from our pleading with the Lord to do things in this church that have eternal weight. That he would save many people for himself. That he would grow this church to boldly proclaim the gospel no matter the costs in Fairdale. That, that generations would be impacted because his people who are here today considered it everything lost for the sake of Christ. What have you been praying for as a church that will matter 30,000 years from now? One of the, the graces of of the Lord to me and my wife when we were here at Fairdale was, he taught us so much about what it meant to be part of a family of believers. You see, we, we grew up at the church I'm at now, and we, we got married when we were 21 and 20. We were young, we didn't know what we were doing. We came to Fairdale, and you taught us what it meant to be brothers and sisters in Christ who show hospitality to one another. The day Amanda, Amanda and I moved in, or moved up to Louisville, I was driving a huge U-Haul and, uh, on the interstate, and I was bouncing around that thing because they don't have good suspension. And I get a phone call, and this voice on the other end is, sounded like a giant, the biggest man I've ever heard of. It was Josh Womble. And I was like, who is this guy? He needs to be on the radio or something, or my bodyguard. And um, he said, hey, uh, I know you're moving in by the seminary, but I want to come help you move in. And uh, I, I was just blown away. Like, I never, never met this guy. I didn't know anything about him. And 
he shows up with Gatorades. He single-handedly picked up the, the 400-pound armoire and carried it up the stairs himself. But he, he, you, you taught us so much about what it means to be the people of God in a family. We, we couldn't even set foot in another church. Like We came to Louisville and there's churches everywhere. We didn't try any out. We came here. Because you loved us so well. There was this clear, strong sense that you loved the Lord and that you welcomed anyone into your community. I don't think I could finish our time today without mentioning the, the cultural climate we live in. The, the love you have for one another in this church and that you've had for us is so desperately needed in this place, in this community. So many kids don't have a, don't have a home to live in. There's one in four kids that live in a home without a biological step or adoptive father. This should, as the church, flatten us. We should, as the body of Christ, be about reaching, serving, discipling, teaching young boys and girls who need a tangible picture of who the Heavenly Father is. One of the joys of my life is raising my kids. Second to that is, um, is discipling young men in, in our college ministry, and I love them like my sons. If we're to, to love the orphan well, we, we desperately need churches that have men and women willing to embrace the Paul and Timothy relationships that God puts before us. We need brothers and sisters to, to go into battle, the battle of our culture on our knees, begging to become more like Jesus and with his help to become the servant king that leads others to the ultimate servant king. In Christ, we are needy people and all we're doing is showing other needy people where the bread is. Each of us need to understand that we are now children of the king, dearly loved. Our love should fuel our audacious request and prayer as we seek it out in God's word. God is for us this morning. May we live in this intimacy with him and let that fuel dependence on him, knowing he is surely not the man behind the curtain. But he has fully revealed himself in Christ and made us his children, and he's inviting you to his table. If you don't know the Lord, come and talk to us about it this morning. We want you to know him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We rejoice, Lord, that we have the assurance in this passage that when we come to you because of the shed blood of Christ, you hear us. And you long to answer us, but Father, you can only see what the future holds, and so we trust you today. Father, I pray for this church that it will continue to be salt and light in this community. That when, when people see First Baptist Fairdale, they, they see people who are, who are certainly not perfect, but people who are pursuing Christ in holiness and compassion and dependency upon the Lord. Father, forgive us for not going to you in prayer or for praying for you for, with wrong motives. Give us hearts that, that beat for you, that yearn for you. Give us hearts 
that see people around us who are lost the way you see them, as people made in your image, people in need of redemption. And Father, we get to take part in that. So God, thank you for First Baptist Fairdale. Thank you for their leadership. I pray that you would just give them um, hearts that are united around the gospel. I pray for the servants in this church who are volunteering and the families in this church and uh, those who have been in this church for a long time. God, I pray that you would just bring a sweet, refreshing unity to this place in the days ahead, that they will be prayerfully dependent upon you for every need. Thank you for your son. And thank you, Father, for the, for the fellowship we're about to enjoy because it's a foretaste of being with you in eternity. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Church, we're going to...